0: Okay, so we are now in March at Aloka Vihara in the winter retreat. Good to have some reference points sometimes. (laughs) So um, normally this time of talk goes for about half an hour, yeah? Half an hour, 40 minutes. Yeah. Okay, so um, Tibetan Buddhists speak for an hour and a half, you know, so I'm really going to have to work hard to... (laughs) Um, so I'm going to talk about, uh, women in Buddhism and the sacred feminine, and it's a kind of topic that's uh, pretty popular these days. Um, but the thing is that everybody has a different perspective and because the sacred feminine has been denied for so long, um, it's like a multifaceted gem, you know? So there's so many angles from which to look at it. And I know um, someone from uh, a community that has a lot of genderqueer people um, was saying, like, you know, we don't, we don't really identify with gender and it's not really relevant to us. Um, and, and I just thought that was interesting because most women, cisgender women that I know are actually very interested in the sacred feminine, um, and even some men. But then I thought actually um, gender is a spectrum and we all have the sacred feminine and the sacred, sacred masculine and something beyond that in us. But to understand um, one facet of human existence is to understand the whole in a way, you know? Um, so I, I don't think it's uh, just a topic for women actually. I think it's a topic for everyone. Because the person who, the man who is unaware of his own capacity to love and nurture and be in touch with his emotions is, is a dangerous man, is a wounded man, is a, uh, uh, an unhappy man. You know, men have a very high suicide rate because often um, they're brutalized by society and they're uh, taught that you're a sissy if you show your emotions. Um, and it's it's getting better, but um in the country town where I grew up, you know there was a good chance uh if your if your husband or son was depressed, you really had to watch them with the gun, you know because there's high unemployment and not a lot of social life, and the only social life revolves around drinking a lot of beer, you know um so and, and the woman who is unaware of her own power, unaware of her own capacity to stand up and do something to help herself and help other women and to be empowered and to, be, to have qualities that are traditionally considered masculine, um, like the active principle, is, is also a woman who probably hasn't fully developed herself. Um, you know, gender roles in India, where I've worked for the last nine years in an Indian slum, are particularly rigid. And um, if you tell a a woman in an Indian slum, you know, be alone, stand up, be independent, that's like a scary thing for them because they've been brought up to know and think of themselves as part of a community. They think of themselves, their identity, as part of their family, part of their community, and they think of themselves as a nurturer, as a a provider of nurturance, you know. So to say, um, do masculine things, for some of them is quite a scary proposition to be fully independent i'm just talking about slum women i'm not talking about well educated middle class indian women and and that's um it's taken me a long time to work with those women to empower themselves to get to get them trained in a job but not just to be trained in a job to get them to have the confidence to open their mouth and speak for themselves and demand their rights and Um, to believe that women can achieve the same things as men can achieve, you know. And it's also taken us quite a while to work with men to get them to understand that women, some men in India, that women are equal human beings who have the capacity to do things. Like in India, if, if uh, if a child's mother dies, very little chance the father will care for the children. He immediately needs to find another wife or give them to some other woman. It's very pre-1950s idea of what men are capable of and what women are capable of. You know, the idea that, um, that you can leave an abusive husband and you don't need a man like that, you know, is, is a very foreign concept to the, to the slum women I work with. Um, and, and I think it's not so... Gender roles are not so overt in the West or they're slightly different. But there is still this idea that we're brought up with um, of what an ideal woman is and what an ideal man is, and women spend a lot of time hating themselves because they don't fit into that um, corset, <laughs> you can say. <laughs> anyway, um, I think the sacred feminine is about going beyond uh, the object- objectification of women and the... the denigration of women and to look at what is a transcendent uh, inspiring loving compassionate, all embracing boundless uh, ideal for humanity and ideal for um, the qualities the spiritual qualities of womanhood and I think for a long time there has been a very great fear an unspoken fear of the sacred feminine because of the power it has you know and it, and all throughout history, as soon any time women have risen up, any time they've got too powerful, lots of men have died in a war, women start owning land. Okay, we need the witch hunts, burn them, burn them. If they uh, sink, they're not a witch. And if they float, they're a witch, so either way they're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean it's shocking that we did uh, we did that in the name of of religion. You know, and I, St. Dominic, St. Dominic started the, witch s- Spanish Inquisition, and he was the patron saint of my girl's school. His statue was in the por- the courtyard, you know, of our school. And I just thought, this is a man who sanctioned burning women alive, who, and you know, some other male saints, supposed saints, who, who wrote the handbook on how to torture witches, you know, not, something like 90% of whom were women, you know, and you just think, how does, Uh, history become his story? And where is her story? You know, because like many women, like many women of my generation, I grew up with the luxury of not having to care too much about feminism or gender equality because I had, I was riding the easy wave of the hard work of women who had gone before. And I heard, oh yes, you know, a hundred years ago, women fought for the vote and chained themselves to fences and were run over by horses to try and get the vote, you know, to get people's attention. But it just seemed like a an abstract idea to me, you know, a world in which women couldn't go to work and a world in which women couldn't wear trousers and a world in which women couldn't vote. You know, it just seemed like a fantasy. Like, could that ever have been a real thing? Um, but it was becoming a Buddhist nun that turned me into a feminist, you know, um, because suddenly I could see, I could... F- The thing about a glass ceiling is you can't see it, but you can feel it. You feel limited. And, of course, the worst thing about combining oppression and spirituality is that you internalize it and you think it's your fault. And they use the ideas, the language of spirituality to oppress you, to say this is your karma, Um, this is your conditions, be patient with it, it's your negative emotions, transform it but actually it took me quite a few years to realise this is BS. <laughs> because, um, you know, there are there ar-hats, are there are female ar-hats who still face gender inequality, you know? Mm-hmm. And how much service do we have to do over hundreds of years? How many meals do we have to cook? How many floors do we have to clean? How many children do we need to birth? before they respect us as equal human beings is it our fate to be constantly in drudgery simply because we were born women you know how much do we have to do to prove to justify our worth you know in india there's this idea of the selfless wife you know but how many meals do you have to cook to get some respect you don't get a pension you don't get sick leave you don't get a day off and it's just told to you you know, inculcated in you as a girl, you know. You are less, serve the men, be quiet, be meek, do as you're told, follow tradition. And the result of that is a 40% domestic violence rate. You know, not just in India, in in many South American countries there is an appalling uh, rate of domestic violence and murder of women and rape, you know, even in the West it's one in five women are raped and 20% domestic violence rate. You know, in some countries, women are more, women under 49 are more likely to die at the hands of their partner than from cancer. In, in, uh, in some countries in Africa, a girl under 18 is more likely to die in childbirth than she is to attend university. And 75% of the poor are women. They do 60% of the world's work and they own 10% of the world's land. And when I started to understand these things... I realized um, that it wasn't just my problem that I was feeling trapped, that I was feeling unrecognized. The fact that the lamas sat on the thrones and stayed for free and the fact that I paid rent as a nun in a Dharma center, worked in a lay job and did, you know, 15 hours work for no, for no pay in the Dharma center. You know, the fact that people bought food to the Tibetan monk and no food to the Western nuns. The fact that Western women... Of the bra-burning generation, uh, elevated men on a platform, you know, exoticized them, and ignored women from their own country. You know, this kind of brainwashing. Um, you had I had to start questioning because I was so very unhappy. And once you see uh, patriarchy at work, it becomes very hard to. It makes you question your faith. You know, no men. No wonder so many. Feminists and socialists are atheists (laughs) because it makes you question your faith, and you see how you know there was some teacher who had a spiritual vision of liberation that was then co opted by the establishment to make everyone follow the established order, follow the party line. You know, the Buddha was a revolutionary, he gave women an equal place in the Sangha, the fourfold Sangha. You know, he said, a country is not a place where Buddhism flourishes until the fourfold Sangha is present. Bhikkhus, bhikkhunis, upasak, upasik. For so long we have not had bhikkhunis. Why? Because of war, but also because of apathy. You know? Um, And... This was a time where women were basically seen as chattels, you know, 2,600 years ago. And the fact that scholars have proved that Bhikkhunis, the Bhikkhuni Order can be revived and that there are still people saying, no, Bhikkhunis don't exist, shows that those monks are actually more backward than men from the Axial Age, you know? <laughs> really, I mean, there's really no justification for it. It's been established. So why are people still questioning it's got to be about more than just the tradition. The tradition is just something people are hiding behind, you know, because people don't want to share their privilege. They fear the breakdown of their tradition and their privilege. That's just my controversial opinion anyway. So what is a more positive vision of, um, of women in, in, in the spiritual path? Because you know, people will say, well, women can also be violent. Women can also be bitchy. Women can also stab each other in the back. Women are not perfect. That's true. But it's also true that when you put a bunch of chickens in a tiny, tiny cage in the corner of what is actually a spacious yard, they will start to peck each other because they don't have enough resources. You know, And they'll internalize the structural violence, you know, of not being given an equal share in power, an equal share in resources. And they, rather than looking at their oppressor, they will start to turn on each other and fight for the limited power that is available within the the circle, the small circle of women, you know. So I think a lot of the violence has to do with that. But, you know, within the history of Buddhism, within the history of religion, there have always been enlightened men and enlightened women who have gone beyond the bounds of um of worldliness you know who have who have found the transcendent despite the inequality and certainly there have been men who helped women cared about women loved women supported women empowered women not to demonize all all men you know and there have been women who were the enemy of their own sex you know so um, the Dakini is a, is a, a Tibetan Buddhist principle, uh, a female enlightened being. It means, it's Sanskrit, and it means sky-goer or sky-dancer um, in the sense that, or space, space-dancer, space-walker. What does that mean? Women have a womb, right? And then you go, oh, that's so transphobic to just talk about female... <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard to please everyone these days. <laughs> um, but the, the cisgender female, you know, thing going on is the womb, the space of birth, the space of creation. So whether that's metaphorical or whether that's physical, that's something women can women represent. The in Tibetan Buddhism, women represent emptiness or the space of potential, and men represent action. Um, or the or the 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 force of uh, creation, the force of doing things. So women represent emptiness, men represent action, compassion. So um, giving, creating the space for uh, primordial wisdom to take birth, and the the four kinds of Buddha activity on the spiritual path that exist. So there are worldly Dakinis who are just like nature spirits. um, And they are not beings to take refuge in, but they can give you a boon, you know, they can give you some benefit, but you shouldn't take refuge in them, you know. And there are also like female Dharma protectors. Some of them are enlightened, some of them are not enlightened. Um, And then there are enlightened Dakinis. And there are three, three ways that Dakinis are born. One is um, uh, like as a deity from, the, from the, the realm of emanations or the Sambhogakaya, which is like a female bodhisattva like Tara or um, Prajnaparamita or Vajrayogini. But they're just, they're not gods, you know. They're just an archetype of what we ourselves can become. Um, and there are dakas also, male, male skygoers. And obviously there are, male bodhisattvas which we know so much about um, and then the second kind of birth of dakinis is uh, in the heavenly realm you know like devas um, and then there is mantra born dakinis which is a human a human woman who is becomes enlightened through the utterance of mantras you know through her spiritual practice um, who has uh, who is a human being with attainment um and actually Tibetan lamas have this Vajrayana vow to never disparage women. To, so if you find them disparaging women, just say, uh-uh-uh, Vajrayana vows. <laughs> See women in, as Dakinis. <laughs> um, so, yeah, uh, so these Dakinis can give birth or they show the, the potentiality of wisdom for the four activities of the Buddha's peaceful, which is related to long life, subduing negative emotions, magnetizing, which is bringing conditions for spiritual practice and overcoming confusion, um, wrathful, which is to remove obstacles on the spiritual path, and enriching, which is like long life, health, attainments, merit. So even if you're Theravadan, in some way you're probably Involved with these kinds of activities on the spiritual path, I mean, you offer service, you know, that's the accumulation of merit, you know, Um, you discipline yourself, that's removing obstacles to the path, you know, you do meditation, which is um, purifying the mind, creating peace, you know, so even Theravadans perform these four activities, just in a less ritualistic way. Um, Dakinis are said to represent a kind of wild, uh, unintellectual, but rather a more primordial wisdom that just cuts through nonsense, you know, that that shocks people and that comes from the heart, you know. And often they will appear in the in the life stories of Mahasiddha's great tantric practitioners. They might appear uh, as a, as a low-caste woman, to to shock a man, they might appear as a as an old woman. They might appear as a beautiful young woman, you know. But they'll appear in a way that will break down their ego, their sense of self clinging, you know. And in the stories of female saints like the Queen of Tibet, um, Yeshe they their darkers appear, you know, and and cut through uh, her conceptualization, her pride. Um, but the the Dakinis often bring attainments because in Vajrayana Buddhism the objects of refuge the outer refuge is the same Buddha Dhamma and Sangha but the inner refuge is Guru Deva Dakini so that's the t- the teacher who is the 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 source of um, teachings and or initiations and the the form you meditate on which is kind of a way of developing samatha and vipassana because we develop calm abiding by clearly visualizing the form of the archetype we're merging with. And then to merge our mind with that deity's nature is to realize emptiness. So that's shamatha and vipassana for us. And then uh, dakini is like um, the root of blessings and the root of realization, you know. Um, And like recognizing the emptiness of thoughts and simultaneously liberating them. It's not so easy to have a very strong emotion like anger, and then suddenly realize this is impermanent, this is uh, dreamlike. But we did a meditation very much like that today with Bhikkhu Bodhi. You know, he was saying, um, if you look in the mind, it contains everything, but uh, but it is not um, composed of those things. You know. it's non-dual appearance and emptiness. It was very Dzogchen-like, actually. I was quite amazed, you know. So uh, that's the the dakini uh, spiel. But also, you know, we should know the stories of um, Buddhist female saints, and those can be found in the Terigata, the lives of the great female nuns and laywomen disciples of the Buddha. Um, I don't know if you guys know the story of Queen Malika, who was King Pasanadi's wife. It's a pretty interesting story. She was a strong woman, you know. Um, One day, King Passanati had been waging wars and protecting his borders, and he was feeling pretty fed up and discouraged and disheartened because he'd lost a battle. So he went to a pleasure garden to get some relief and rest. Um, And the story goes that he... um, he rode in on his horse and he saw the most stunning woman who was a simple flower seller. But not only was her stunning beauty just at something of a look of compassion in her eyes. I know it sounds romantic, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) And um, he just, obviously there was some kind of past life connection anyway. So he just felt like she could offer him comfort. So the story goes that he just—they caught each other's gaze, and they couldn't break away. And um, and she took the, the reins of his horse, and then um, later on, he just spent the afternoon with her, and he put his head in her lap, and she just soothed him, you know, and and he felt uh, hope, renewed hope, renewed energy. Um, so by the end of the day, he'd gone to her father, a flower seller, which you can imagine is, is such a huge social gap, uh, and asked for her hand in marriage. And she became the principal queen of Kosala. So the Buddha said, uh, actually all the monks were gossiping about this, like, wow, King Pasanadi has married a flower seller. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the Buddha said, this is an example of karma. You know, this, this woman... In fact, I think he predicted it. Today, some woman's karma will ripen very strongly, very quickly. You know, you never know. You can start the day as a flower seller and end up as a queen. <laughs> Take hope. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> in San Francisco, that story could have a very different ending. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> Um, But those queens are just as fabulous. Um, So, yeah, so I, but the thing about that is, I mean, you might think, well, you know, that's a classic example of um, a privileged male just kind of sweeping a woman off on her, off her feet. And, you know, it's, it's like not a very equal power share in that relationship, but actually she had most of the control in that relationship and she got King Pasanati to come to the Buddha and attend teachings, you know, she actually went to the Buddha and she said, I can't believe my good luck. What is it that created these circumstances for me? And the Buddha said, this is, I think, he said, you did something very good in your past life. Was it offering food to a monk or something? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was offering food to a monk, I think. I could be wrong. So, you know, everybody after that was like, oh, let me offer food to the monks. (laughs) Um, And, um, but, you know, like... (laughs) I, I think that's the story, but, but anyway, you know, and she got him to come to the Buddha for teachings and to become a Buddhist. And she often advised him, you know, in, in so many ways. And they would argue as well. Like she, she was a woman with her own mind, you know, and sometimes they would come to the Buddhist teachings and they wouldn't be talking to each other because everybody praised queen Malika, her beauty, her strength, her intelligence, you know, her, her skills in, in various ways. And King Pasenadi would be like, "Oh, she's too full of herself. <laughs> she just won't listen to me. It's gone to her head, you know." But but sooner or later, she would be. He would be back in her arms, you know, back in her charms. And um, they loved each other until the very end, you know. Um, and she was highly esteemed, highly. Et- and in those times, you know, uh, some women of wealthy families were educated, you know. And the Buddha praised educating women. Uh, and also, uh, so one time, Ma- Queen Malika gave birth to a daughter, not a son. And King Pasanadi went to the Buddha and he was like, I'm a bit disappointed. You know, I was she's my foremost queen and I was really hoping she'd give me an heir. And, um, and all I've got is a princess, you know. And the Buddha was like, well, better a virtuous daughter than a useless son, an unvirtuous son. <laughs> you know, so that's pretty progressive for 2,600 years ago. Um, And, you know, people will give you quotes to denigrate women. There are quotes that denigrate women in the Pali Canon and in in the Mahayana Sutras also. But it's really interesting when people do um, text research, you know, when they compare the Agamas and the Pali Canon and the different canons of the different traditions, they can actually strip away uh, and they see that, you know, over time misogyny kind of overlaid and and just subtle shifts in the way that women were described, you know, like especially uh, uh, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati Gotami, you know. F- like sometimes it would seem when you look at the Pali Canon, it would seem when she comes to see the Buddha that he's like a bit irritated and he doesn't really want to see her and it's like, oh, that troublesome woman again. But actually if you look in the arguments, if you look back in that research, you see over time just the subtle way, the subtle change of words, the subtle description of how the nuns started to be described, you know. And and in the beginning it was just like, oh, well, that monk didn't teach them today. He was busy, he was sick, he was doing something else. He didn't want to leave his meditation. But over time it became that monk uh, insisted he not be near women and didn't want to teach the nuns and kept them at arm's length, you know. So it's like interesting orally over 400 years how... This kind of thing crept in more. So you know, so I think it's really important to look for the, for the spirit, for the heart of the teachings, and not, uh, use the teachings like poison, you know, to not grab the the tail of the snake, you know, but find a better way to catch the snake with a, with a stick of wisdom, you know. Um, don't use the medicine as poison because it is kind of common to go to asia and to be told, you know, like in sri lanka I was told every second day, women can't become buddhas. You know, I was like, well, I'll show you. <laughs> and um <laughs> and you know, I mean, it's probably going to take many lifetimes to become a buddha, so you know, do I need to worry about that right now anyway? <laughs> and there's um even a story in a mahayana sutra of like a woman changing gender overnight, you know as she got in, enlightened or something. So all kinds of things are possible, you know, really. And even the way these things are described is so, I mean, the Buddha himself said that, that enlightenment is beyond the, you know, it's beyond form, beyond the mind, you know, man, woman, whoever discriminates in this way is not a wise disciple of mine, you know? So, um, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Emptiness is not other than form, you know, like, so if you look at the ultimate teachings, the deeper teachings, I think it really is beyond gender. And then, you know, there is um, Yeshe Sogyal, the queen of Tibet, who at a young age wanted to become a nun, but her parents thought that they could make a lot of money from marrying her off to some nobleman and, and get a bride price. So they married her off to the king of Tibet, King Detsen, and she was in tears as she was dragged away at at a very young age to marry this man who just turned out to be a decent guy um, but it would be terrible to have your whole life depending in the hands of someone else you know someone else could determine your future happiness and you had very little very little say in it um, so her eventually guru rimshe came to guru rimshe the the indian lay guru who came with a with a monk, um, Sangha Rakshita, from India to bring Buddhism to Tibet. And King Trisandetson offered um, Yeshe Sogyal as a, as a gift because it was considered you would almost offer your whole kingdom, like everything, the teachings were worth that much. Um, and Padma Sambhava was very enlightened and, and had a very progressive attitude to women and actually said... Um, if women have wisdom, their bodies are more ideal for the realization of uh, the nature of mind. You know, because women are in touch with their intuition; they're not emotionally shut down. You know, so Yeshe Sogyal became one of his foremost disciples, and they they uh, had a relationship, and they traveled to many places, giving different teachings, um, hiding future teachings like termas, wisdom termas, writing texts and hiding them in a cave to be discovered later on spreading the teachings, transcribing the teachings from the Indian language into the Tibetan language. So Yeshe Sogyal was instrumental in all of that, you know, and yet she still faced uh, discrimination now and then, or people who were jealous, you know. But Padma Sambhava gave her a foremost place as his disciple, you know. Uh, and finally, she, she, um, Padma Sambhava said, it's time for you to go off and practice on your own, you know. And she prostrated until, like, the, the skin peeled off her body, you know, and she recited texts and mantras until she couldn't speak anymore. And, I mean, that's just a, a way of saying she practiced really hard. <laughs> it Tibetans like, these tough kind of stories. And, um, and then one day some – I mean, think about it. A woman who's grown up as an aristocrat is now living um, on clay, eating clay, subsisting on very small amounts of food in a cave and wearing – you know, a white rag. It's a pretty amazing thing. The woman must have had some faith. And one day some Bhutanese shepherds came into the cave in the Himalayas where she was meditating. It was extremely cold. She was practicing inner heat meditation, which is not about temperature, by the way. It's actually um, developing the inner fire, the, the inner heat that purifies. Like Tibetan Buddhists think that Your negative emotions and delusion also manifest in a subtle body of light. So if you can clear your channels of negative emotions, that's a skillful way of also doing it. It's like doing it on an an energetic level instead of on a more gross level. So these uh, Bhutanese shepherds raped her, which is obviously a terrible thing, but sadly the experience of so many women, you know, of being abused or oppressed in some way. Um, But as they were raping her, this tremendous energy of, of her spiritual practice penetrated their bodies and then they just fell down on their knees crying and felt tremendous remorse for what they'd done because suddenly this energy of her practice had been transmitted to them, you know, and they realized they'd done a terrible thing and they asked for her forgiveness and she actually gave them a Dharma teaching. I mean, it's controversial for sure. I mean, I'm not in any way condoning rape or anything like that, but it's just interesting to know that even enlightened women face the kind of problems and discrimination and violence we face these days. I'm not saying even that that would be the best way to deal with it. You know? those, most rapists definitely deserve to be in prison. But it was just interesting the way you know, she dealt with it, and it is interesting that it was written into the text, you know, that that's a very human story, that those saints are not just stone not just gold, they're human beings who suffered uh, and women who suffered, you know, and women who despite patriarchy could attain awakening. So then later on um, she attained awakening in the cave and later on she did more activities to spread the Dharma, established many monasteries, established nunneries, gave teachings, debated um, the local religion, shamanists, who were kind of into human sacrifice. Um, And, you know, as a result of her activity and Padma Sambhava's activity, Buddhism was established in Tibet. You know, and to this day, if you see a statue of Padma Sambhava, sure enough, you'll see two women standing either side of him. One is his Indian wife and one is his Tibetan wife. You know, and uh, I think there has always been a place for women in... Uh, the tantric tradition, you know, because of what dakinis represent, because of what the sacred feminine represents. But of course, it's always been a subverted, uh, symbolic thing, you know. But lama's wives, nuns, um, meditating alone in in the mountains were always revered. But of course, they still had to work twice as hard as men to show that they were worthy. Uh, There is a story in my sakya tradition of Uh, one of the throne-holders' sisters, who always became nuns, Jetsunmas, great female practitioners. And one day she was invited of the Sakya family, who were like a, a, a kind of married lama lineage, but they also had monastic, you know, trained monks as well. And so this nun, Jetsunma, of the Sakya tradition, she was invited to give a teaching to thousands of monks, you know, and some of the monks were very arrogant and they were like, we don't want to be taught by a woman. You know, and so she was like, "Okay, if that's what you want," and she just hung her mala in space and walked away. <laughs> and after that, they were like, "Okay, we want to teach you." <laughs> and you know, some of the most um, cherished practices of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, like Tara, you know, every lama prays to the swift saviouress, relieving one from the eight great fears, the female embodiment of active compassion. They pray to her every day. Um, and Vajrayogini is a very cherished tradition in, in Tibetan Buddhism. Machig Lapdron, who was one of the female founders of Chud. one could go on and on. But the point is that women have to come down, the sacred feminine has to come down from the shrine and into the world and into the way we run our Dharma centres and the way we talk to our daughters and the way we empower women, you know, so that it's not just men on the throne, that there is equality, that we don't support dysfunction, you know, unconsciously, because it is kind of shocking that Western nuns pay to stay in Dharma centers, in Tibetan Buddhist centers, and that men are on thrones, you know, and that that a person of one race is considered superior to a person of another race, you know, and that there are these Western women giving money for monasteries that they will never be able to enter, you know, using our resources to set up monasteries for men that we will never be able to enter. To me, that is uh, pretty shocking. You know, when I asked a Tibetan Lama in a monastery in Nepal that had been donated by a Western nun, why do you charge Western Sangha? We have a 75% disrobing rate. We have nowhere to stay. We have three centers in the world out of hundreds of Tibetan Buddhist centers in the West that do not charge us. We only have one center in the world that is actually run by a Western nun that doesn't charge Western Sangha. And he said, why should we support you? You're just a tourist. And he was living on land donated by a woman. That's how sick male privilege is. That's how insidious it is. And we unconsciously support it, you know. We enable it in the way we speak to our sons, in the way we ask our female friends, can you bring some food to the centre? We don't ask our male friends. Do you mind to clean up? Do you mind to do this? You know, in in a thousand subtle ways. And... um, I've kind of lost my train of thought now. But it is it is insidious, you know, um, this kind of double standard that we have to look at and address and name, you know, if we really want to end, if we really want to hold our heads up and say Buddhism is a religion that offers human rights, that offers equality. And we need to, like if every woman in Thailand tomorrow said to the monks, we are not offering you food until you ordain bhikkhunis, How long do you think it would take for bhikkhunis to be ordained? Yeah? Actually, in uh, in some African country, Liberia, I think, a war was ended when women said, we won't give you sex until you stop fighting. (laughs) You know? So think about it. Think about it. Women have the power to change the world. We are, there's a saying in Chinese, women are half the sky. You know, women are the earth on which we stand. Women are 50% of the population. And there are sympathetic men too. So we need to work together to realize our potential, to realize the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine within, to unite those polarities for the benefit of the world, for the benefit of humanity, for the benefit of the Dharma, so that the Dharma may last long for the fourfold Sangha to flourish. Fourfold, not threefold. Yeah. Does anyone have any questions? I've talked very long, longer than most Theravadan teachers. <laughs> it's a chance for you to talk. I know you're in silence. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> no? I sort of have a, you know, I, I'm not familiar with the Tibetan tradition, but I know that there is some um, at least one somewhat famous female Lama, Khandro Rinpoche, I think, and how is she sort of viewed by, like, other, you know, both by the laity as well as by, like, male lamas and stuff? Yeah. So um, it's true that in Tibetan Buddhism there are female lamas, but you can kind of count Very them on... Rare. Yeah, you can count them on your hand. And they're usually the relative of some very powerful lama, like Khandro Rinpoche is the daughter of Minjoling Rinpoche, who was the head of the Nyingma tradition. So he kind of... Tibetans are very... uh, They pass their power down in their family to their relatives. So she kind of inherited some of his power. Not to say that she doesn't deserve that in her own right, because she's studied hard and she's a very well-trained woman. And I think um, many wives of lamas and many um, women who spend a lot of their life in retreat are actually revered by Tibetans but there is still this kind of expectation that normal women will cook and clean and monks will meditate and you can see that in the Himalayas you know like in the Himalayas often nuns would work in the fields and monks would um, stay in the monastery and do chanting so Although there are exceptions, you know, there's Jetsun Tenzin Palmo, there's Pema Chodron, uh, there's Jetsunma, Sakya Jetsunma, Kush, um, there's also the wife of another leader of the Sakya tradition, Jetsun Dagmo in Seattle. Um, but these, these are exceptions to the rule generally, and they usually are, have a, a very high powered relative, or they had to practice very hard to, to get where they are. Even Tenzin Pomo has been in tears, you know, about how she was treated, you know, how she was marginalized um, in the Tibetan tradition. So I think it's kind of across the board, actually, Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana. Although I think Mahayana nuns have a slightly better, like there's some very powerful nuns in Taiwan. There's more nuns than monks. Um, and I think generally if we look we see places where bhikkhunis, where women are well-educated and they have full ordination, they generally are better off than the nuns who are really not really recognised as nuns and not really recognised as lay people. Like Burma, you know, where a woman was taught, basically put in jail for the crime of being a bhikkhuni, you know, um... But even having said that, you know, there are women who still manage to be incredibly inspiring, even under those tough circumstances. You know, there is very impressive Sayales who give teachings who are well-regarded and there is impressive nuns in many Buddhist countries, you know, in Meichis in Thailand that are well-respected. But there is still always this kind of subtle, well, not sometimes not so subtle idea that that they're not quite as good as monks, you know. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah. I mean, I think those women are highly regarded, but they are the exception rather than the norm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tibetans do respect women who practice, but you really do have to work twice as hard to prove yourself. And before, you know, Tibetans came to the West, most Tibetan nuns were... Uh, much less educated than monks, you know it 's only recently after a thousand years of holding the Dharma that they 've finally um granted Geshima status to females, you know, which is the kind of equivalent of a doctorate of divinity in Tibetan Buddhism. It took them a thousand years, so <laughs> yeah, but often women didn 't always want to compete in a patriarchal scene as well. you know there are a lot of female yogis who just went up into the hills and got enlightened quietly. You know, and there are the stories of Machi Glaptron who was a lay woman who had five children um, and who she left in the care of her husband and she said I'm going off to meditate now it's my time <laughs> so there are all kinds of ways of practice you know but often these women were the exception rather than the norm Is there a nun sangha uh, so that can support each other? There is the Non-Himalayan Nuns Alliance, which was recently formed a year ago, after Buddhism being in the West for 40 years. But because a lot of the nuns who were the, like, founding generation, like Jensen Tenzin um, and Palmo, and Annie and and Somo, they've started nunneries for Tibetan nuns, so they're busy with those projects, you know, and they're also, some of them, in their 70s, so... Mm-hmm there's a limited amount of energy. Um, but there is a momentum going on. There's also a tremendous resistance, you know, in, in, especially in Tibetan Buddhism towards even seeing value in monastic life, you know, Mm -hmm. um, like I, I, I myself, I'm trying to start a a hermitage for Western monastics and I get trolled on, you know, on social media, you know, with people saying, you know, you're bludgers and we're not going to support your lifestyle. And, you know, and I work in an Indian slum, it's not like I've not given service, you know, (laughs) but it doesn't, people, people can be quite resentful and it, it goes against the Protestant work ethic, you know. So even to get people to understand the value of monastics is very hard. And in Tibetan Buddhism, it's very confusing because there's these lay lamas and lay teachers and there's these teachings that say, yes, lay people have Buddha nature and can become awakened. And, you know, people who become monastic are oppressed and backward and primitive and that's the you know l- lowest vehicle whatever for people who don't have enough discipline to have a consort or something you know like people have really mixed up everything but if you look at the way that tibetan buddhism is practiced monasticism has always been a pillar of, of transmitting the dharma and padma himself said the monastics will hold the dharma and he established Samye Monastery. It's just that Tibetans haven't fully transmitted this culture of monasticism because they're in preservation mode. You know, they're they're traumatized refugees trying to re-establish their own own community. So their priority is to support other Tibetans, which they do by funneling donations into lavish monasteries for ten thousand monks, who they consider to be the real practitioners. You know, but I think we really have to give up this this um, exoticism. Of, of thinking that Westerners um, can't be good practitioners, you know. So the, and a lot of the women who ordained are very um, independent, strong-minded women, not necessarily women, pioneers. So trailblazers, not necessarily women who would do so well um, uniting and working together because they're women who have had to push and push and push and break away and go against society rather than being women who work well in a group, you know, so that's been another problem, these so-called independent uh, <clears throat> women. But I guess that's just something we need to learn slowly over time, you know. I don't think you can run Western monasteries the way you run Asian monasteries. Even the method of study, you know, the endless debate and, and memorization, and it's not necessarily so meaningful for Westerners, you know, who are already quite... Overly conceptual and mostly well educated. So I think we need to just look at new ways of of building sustainable monasteries, you know. But I don't mean to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's a challenge, you can say, for us to work together, and we're trying to overcome that. But a lot of the nuns are also older women, you know, so it's also not easy to adopt a communal lifestyle and, and be told by someone 20 years younger than you who's senior to you, that you should, you know, how to, how to shave your head properly and how to make your bed properly and how to hold your bowl properly and, you know, to just kind of adapt a completely different communal lifestyle as well. The Sangha is an aging Sangha, so that's also another challenge. Um, but I think that the really big one in Tibetan Buddhism is the lay people are really not supporting us and neither are the lamas. So I think we need to really voice um, the inequality and and try and make people understand it's a double standard to say that you believe in gender equality and you believe that all human beings have Buddha nature and to just support men of one race and not women from your own country. And you know, the fourfold Sangha to flourish, it's not that we're saying monastics are better than lay people, we're just saying that that's um, an an, an important, valuable way to practice that the Buddha created, you know. Lay upasak upasik bhikkhu bhikkhuni. It's just inclusiveness. And I think if you look at intersectional Buddhism, bikunis are the most vulnerable. You know that they, they have broken away from traditional patriarchal patriarchal structures that don't that don't accept their ordination. So they neither have support from traditional Buddhists nor do they have a lot of support from Western new Buddhists. And that's why the whole Bikuni Theravada Bikuni revolution in the West is so wonderful and impressive. And I'm so encouraged and why I usually hang out in Theravada centers, <laughs> and I'm trying to learn what they do, you know. <laughs> so I can build a similar revolution. <laughs> yeah. So I probably we should finish. So thank you for being such a lovely audience and for allowing me to stay in your beautiful monastery and for offering service. May all beings be happy. Mm-hmm.